friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. After a week-long hiatus, vacation, on the beach, what have you, whatever you're imagining we did last week, we are back, Jake. It's so good to be back, isn't it? It is so good to be back. I missed you all, all you lovely listeners. There was a definite gap in my week last week, and it's not just because I had to stay late at work multiple times. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's weird when you get into a new groove and then things get, you know... Uh, kind of derailed a little bit there but basically like you tweeted out eloquently last week this comes down to basically us proving to you our beloved listeners that jake and i do not live in our mom's basements we are grown men with families and have responsibilities and stuff happens yeah you know and i i would point out that we both have families and we both are in grad school but we love you guys so much that here we are back again ready to talk about comics that we can watch that's right, because man children never grow up. <laughs> <laughs> um, although we kind of growing up a little bit, we're going a, a touch adult here because mm. uh, if you've read the episode synopsis already, then you know that we're going to be diving deep into the Jessica Jones pool, and she is by no means family friendly. No, not even a little bit. Like this is, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about on HBO, you can use the F word. Well, that was 2008, and now you can say it on Netflix too. But they don't here, <laughs> do they? They don't. Netflix has all kinds of like goody, colorful little nuggets there that we can just relish in as adults and say, yeah, I can consume that. Um, so I do want to, so basically what we're going to do, quick little breakdown of what, where we're headed Um, We are going to talk about the first three episodes of Jessica Jones. Um, If you are listening to the Watching Comics podcast for the very first time, welcome. We appreciate it. You always remember your first time. But um, Jake and I are talking about all the types of comic book things that we love, more specifically the things that we love that we can watch because we both have a strong affinity for comic books and we also love watching them on our screens and we live in a time where they are everywhere. So uh, check out some of our other episodes, but uh, this one's Jessica Jones season two, episodes one through three. And then we also, at the tail end of this episode, have a really cool thing that um, watching comics has never done before in our short life. We will be reviewing a comic that we have been asked to review. So I'm super stoked about that, too. Um, But so many dreams coming true at once, like 12 year old me is somewhere screaming for joy. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like we we got shoulder tapped to read something that someone else made because they thought our opinion mattered and we are going to share it with the world because, damn it, our opinion matters. Mm, you deserve to hear our opinion. Yeah, you really do. And you're going to be better off because of it, because <laughs> um, I mean, we said so. Isn't that good enough? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm. Um, <laughs> But Jake, before we dive deep into season two of Jessica Jones, which came like an excruciating almost three years after the inaugural season, can we can we take just a couple of minutes? I just want to want to take out. I'm going to I'm going to snip here minute or two or three or four or five and just let's revisit briefly Jessica Jones season one under the microscope and just have a quick little palette refresher here. So um, give me like a 30 second or so ish hot take on uh, Jessica Jones season one as a whole leading in. 
I, I actually feel that season one of Jessica Jones might be my favorite thing on Netflix. Um, not just my favorite comic Boom. book related thing. Coming in hot. That's a big yeah. statement. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, Jake, but Netflix has a lot of stuff. They have so and... much stuff. Like, have you ever just browsed the shows on Netflix? There's stuff on there that I cannot figure out how it got greenlit. And but just someone so much. got paid for that to get filmed. Yes. And, and and for you, Jessica Jones sits atop of the mountain. Yeah, I really think that um to to keep it brief, because uh, it is season one, I thought season one was it was that moment where this superhero genre that we love so much transcends what it is, and it becomes this really unique lens that we can look at a, an issue or life through. And I thought season one was such a brilliant look at both mental health and abuse. And it was so heartbreaking at times. And and it was so poignant. And also freaking David Tennant, man. Holy cow. <laughs> freaking David Tennant. Hashtag mic drop. That's it. End of episode. Cut it. Roll it. Um, <laughs> I. It's interesting. I, I don't know if I want to say that Jessica Jones season one is my favorite thing on all of Netflix, but I will definitely say this. Um, as far as Marvel TV is concerned, Jessica Jones season one is arguably the best thing that they've done. Mm -hmm. And in the grand scheme of things of everything Marvel has done that is watchable, be it Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the other Netflix shows or all of the Marvel movies jessica jones is like in my season one is in my top three like in conversation with like black panther that good mm. um so it's remarkable and i i will say that it, echoing your sentiments of mental health abuse um just biting the bullet and saying we're feminists without really having to tell you that they're feminists because they're acting as though it is the natural thing and that's what i love about it it's it's got an agenda, but it's not screaming that they have an agenda. It's just assuming that we are enlightened and evolved enough to be able to operate as though this is the norm and should be the norm, which is refreshing. Um, but I'm going to say that I think what I love the most about season one, and we'll get to this when we get, when I talk about season two as well, because this is a big tipping point for me. Season one may be one of the best single installments of genre crossover I have ever seen in either a cinema like take or a television take. And by genre crossover, I mean where we have two different, when you say like archetype or specific approaches to a narrative. And instead of choosing one, you meld the two together. And a lot of times it just becomes a big muddled mess because there's multiple voices trying to surface to the top and there's just no consistency. This melded together to create a beautiful symphony. And what I mean is these two genres were the comic book genre, what we knew beforehand, and molded it into this fantastical slash realistic film noir sense. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like season one was sleuthy and noiry, if those words are even real. Um, they are now because I said them on the interwebs, but they're there. They have those components that are rich and and perfect for those type of niche things that you get in those types of old TV shows and films. 
but at the same time, it was still incredibly well-written, high-quality 21st century comic book narrative, too. And I loved living in that world. I loved picking up the clues. I loved the deep character study. I loved the social commentary, but I loved it within that delicious wrapping paper of the the superhero-ish comic bookish lore. So that, that, that for me was the big takeaway was just, it was the, the showrunners put this thing together. Um, it was absolutely incredible. Melissa Rosenberg basically said, I'm going to take these comics and I'm going to make film noir for comic book fans. And I'm going to do it in a way they've never seen before. And it's not going to suck. And she hit the nail on the head. Like she knocked it out of the park. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I really can't say enough. I mean, you, and I'm right there with you. Everything you said, you're, you're foreshadowing stuff that I'm probably going to say in the next half hour here. I mean, it's, but yeah, I absolutely am with you. I can't say enough good about season one of this show. Beautiful. So if you are listening to this and have not yet seen season one, press pause mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. I'm done with a sentence and go and watch season one, binge it 13 episodes, whatever you have to do, get on it and then hop back over to us. And then you can jump into the season two conversation. Ready? Go. Okay. So well, now Jake, that we're alone. Now that we're alone, <laughs> um, I, I do want to say we're, we're going to try really hard not to give any spoilers because Jake and I have watched ahead a little bit because obviously we didn't watch, we didn't record last week like we had hoped. But we're talking only about episodes one through three. So we're going to try to keep the spoiler free from after episode three. Um, but, Jake, I, I want to kind of break down what yours and my respective like three main takeaways are from the first three episodes. Um, so just kind of rattle, what, what's your biggest takeaway here? We watched the first three episodes of Jessica Jones, you know, you you knew we were going to talk about it. So just give me one of your biggest takeaways, good or bad, just something that's sticking out. So the very first thing to me, and, um, I really kind of jumped back and forth about how in depth to go on this, but I actually think that it's going to make for the most honest review I can give to get deep into this. Um, The biggest takeaway for me is the mental health angle, because I actually, and I won't linger on this, but I actually, a couple of years ago, was diagnosed with major depression, and um, which is a thing that, you know, in hindsight, I can see all of these little steps through my life showing me, oh, yeah, I probably should have been more on that. And watching, (laughs) watching Jessica push everyone around her away because she just doesn't know how not to hits me so close to where I live that it's, it's almost, it's uncomfortable in the best way, right? Like I'm not saying it's negative. Uh It's so true to my experience before I got help and before I got better. And it's so like painful in the best way because I look at it and I'm like, that's what it felt like. And it's like, Man, just the inability to take help, the inability to recognize help, and to still think you're doing the right thing, like the way that your brain can just be scrambled up, and watching her try and fail to navigate these personal relationships. And to add to that, I think to, you know, to spoil, well, I I won't spoil, we'll get to my second point after I think, let's do your first point. But that's the big standout to me is the emphasis on without saying it, but just the look at her mental health and her state is so powerful. That's the big standout to me. For sure. Um, 
I mean, it, I think it's safe to assume because I we've watched three episodes and it's three episodes is a good chunk because there's only thirteen, right? So it's not mm-hmm. like we just watched forty five minutes and then we're just guessing here. And it's <laughs> it's it's clearly a common ingredient that's going to be woven into the fiber of every episode. That's that's one of the arcs here. And and I echo your sentiments is. There are many pieces of that that hit close to home as well. I have a, a sibling that deals with uh, mental illness as well, with some pretty severe bipolar issues and everything like that. Totally normal when he's on his medication, but it's one of those things where it's it's a smart illness where it can outsmart your medication after time and mm. everything. And it's just one thing you've always got to stay on top of, and you've always got to have a doctor you see regularly. And, and it obviously affects your relationships and your ability or inability to trust yourself when things are going wrong, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's, it's a lot. And so, um, we talked a lot about this with my friend, Rachel too, because she has a, a friend or some family members that deal with things like this too. And it's just, it's so important to us when we see these issues handled delicately and appropriately and authentically, even if it is in a fantastical world of comic book lore. And so, because I'm sure you would agree with me, Jake, we've seen so many of these things done not well in mainstream media. And it's just when, when, when they get it right, or they can at least hit notes of it that seem to resonate in a realistic way that does bring a sobering appreciation to the whole arc, I think. Yeah, for sure. I and I th- I think that nails it right on the head. Like it's just so authentic, you know. And there's something that is just it's so raw, but at the same time so respectful, you know. Like punches are not pulled, but that's a good thing. Exactly. Now I want to jump into my first point here and say that as much as I appreciate everything that we just covered, um, I'm gonna say what I. My my first big takeaway is I don't like the way they chose to unveil the season and the pacing that and and, and the and the story intertwine intertwining that they use in specifically the first two episodes. I feel like they missed a mark with the way they're unfolding the narrative, and I hope I'm wrong as the season progresses. But so season one was a brilliant textbook but also reimagined approach to film noir and i think that's what made it feel like it was so set apart for so many people like there's so many people i talked to about season one that said i loved it i knew it was great but it was unlike anything i had ever seen before but i'm not 100 for sure why i loved it like that and i think it's because of the noir approach we don't have very much of that in the comic book lore that we've been watching in mainstream media and it's just refreshing to see it done right and done it even though it's done for the first time here. And the first two episodes seem to be awfully rushed in the concept of how many different story arcs of different characters can we shove in the expository sections of these first two episodes rather than unraveling them organically. And Mm. as I dove into the third episode and some of the Jessica alienation starts to really take into effect in that episode... Um, where she really just starts to push people away and just start saying, okay, I'm going Han Solo on this thing. Um, I, 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 I had wished that they had done a more of a slow, subtle study unraveling of that lead up into that arc for her in the first two episodes. And that could have been done if they would have given her 
like ironically would have given Jessica Jones more Jessica Jones time like they did mm-hmm. in the first season. And it's not like I need a lot of expository stuff on these other characters that we've lived with for a whole season either. And um, if, if we want to get to the ALS diagnosis of um, the other main supporting character, then we can get to that in a, in a later on episode. I'm not sure we needed to get to that in the first, you know, seven minutes of the first episode with Jerry. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure we needed to go through all of the Trish power moves as much as we needed to in the first couple of episodes. So I guess my my big takeaway is I love what they're doing with Jessica's character. I don't love how they're trying to make sure that it's almost like there's equal amount of screen time between Mm -hmm. these three or four main characters rather than just tell me the story in a way that that unravels organically. Yeah, and I um it's interesting that you specifically there mentioned um the the ALS diagnosis for are, are we are we spoilers, we're calling this one out. Um yeah. if you haven't seen the first three episodes and you kept listening after we told you to stop, um you got you just got your first spoiler. <laughs> yeah, re- rewind and pause, darn it. Um yeah, it's interesting you called that one out because while I, I the story is good. Like I don't have a problem with the story, but Jerry Hogarth being diagnosed with ALS feels like to me, it just feels like the, the last thing that didn't fit. Like it just like, that's where it felt overstuffed to me. Um, and I don't think the episodes are very overstuffed, but I felt like had that been removed and maybe not even removed, but just recut, you know, then I think Mm -hmm. that maybe Mm -hmm. it would have felt a little less overstuffed to me. Yeah, uh, I think what what they're doing, and we'll see later on as we watch more episodes. I'm assuming what they're doing is they're attempting to humanize humanize her as fast as possible early yeah. on in the season. So then, when the stakes are really high, she's clearly going to make a decision of some kind that's going to be a lot more easy to trigger our emotion if we're attached to her in some way. Because I keep thinking, if I'm just thinking pragmatically about the first three episodes, and I'm thinking about what I know about Jerry's character already, and what I wish I had a little bit more of with Jessica, then I'm thinking, okay, they could have cut the whole scene where she does the pre-orgy dance stuff with Jerry. <laughs> and they and and what they could have done was just show her pick up the three different hookers separately in like a quick little cutaway in two minutes or less. And also, then we, what it, am I supposed to take away? We would have gotten that. Well, and, and what am I supposed to take away from the fact that she paid hookers to watch her dance? Yeah, I know. I know, right? So uh, it, maybe it's like one of those Showtime or HBO moves where they want to prove that they can show nudity and do <laughs> sexy things like that. So they always throw it in the first couple episodes of the season to make you feel like, oh, there's going to be boobs in this. And then the season is done. You realize you don't get it the rest of the way at all because it's they just put it in the, at the beginning in the teaser. Not saying that that's a reason you should watch a show, but like I just think Dexter was notorious for this. If you ever watch oh, yeah. Dexter, it's like Dexter, they always showed a naked woman in the first couple episodes and there was never naked people the rest of the season. And I'm like, <laughs> I think that's just to try to get people hooked on the new season is all it is. Yeah. I just, it just felt like a waste of money on her part to me. Like completely. Yeah. And so I, 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 I think that, that has to be the long play. Otherwise it was just, they were overstuffing is what they were doing. I think, yeah, I think you're right on that. All right. So takeaway number two, the first three episodes of season two, Jessica Jones, Jake feed me. Um, well, mine is actually, I, I feel that it, and I, 
I don't know if this is good or bad. I think it's good. But now that you've been talking, you got me double. You got me uh, questioning myself. I feel like they're leaning a little more heavily into the noir elements, at least like more traditional ones um, uh-huh. this season, because there's more of a like the first season it, we've already gushed about. But man, the the ending of the first episode where that girl gets into the elevator with her parents. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. It's I, like the most bone chilling moment. Um, that's what, like I. I had goosebumps for all the wrong reasons and I never want like, that's the kind of feeling I get when I watch a David Fincher movie and mm, I oh, never, that's w- such a good analysis. Yeah. And I never would have thought that I would have said to myself what I said at the end of episode one of Jessica Jones is similar to what I said at the very end of the first time I saw seven or fight club or girl, with the dragon tattoo, which was, that was one of the most magnetic and profound things I've seen and I'm unsettled by it. And I couldn't ever, I couldn't believe that I was saying that about a comic book TV show as much as I love the medium. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I, I think to, to be the, um, the comic nerd that I am, I have always felt, so Jessica Jones, the character is invented by this guy named Brian Michael Bendis, who is like the okayest comic book writer alive. Usually um mm-hmm. he i feel about him the way i feel about you know to throw back to our Zack snyder episode i feel bendis has this niche niche that he won't stay in um and he keeps getting like he's about to write superman actually um oh oh and, boy yeah Yay, okay just, superman <laughs> yeah exactly well and superman's coming off this incredible run in the comics Anyway, um, but so, but what he does once in a while is all of a sudden after, you know, he'll write years and years of really mediocre X-Men comics and then he'll be like, wow, Jessica Jones. And oh man, is this guy brilliant? And then it's like, we're just going to kind of dink around over here for a while. Iron Man is adopted. I don't know. That's supposed to be a big deal. And then "Ah, there's a new Spider-Man and he's half black and he just does these crazy got, things that work AD, so well for him. He's got ADD for comic book narrative. Maybe. Um, but so his Jessica Jones comics, to me, they always work the best when they lean into the mystery element. Um, and I was really psyched to see them go that angle with the show. But what's also exciting is this is where I think you really learn these. Okay, so these adaptations that we love so much it's the second it's the follow-up where we really learn is there substance here because anybody yes. can not anybody but it, it it's a different talent set to take a pre-existing story and adapt it to a different medium right and we've talked about that a few different times on this show and i think that season one of jessica jones follows while not exactly closely it follows to a certain degree Bendis's most famous story from Jessica Jones involving the Purple Man or Kilgrave. Um, mm-hmm. And this second season is diverting from that now. And so it's not adapting a pre existing story. It's taking the spirit of the thing and running in a different direction with it. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. And you see, is this something is this adaptation something that is going to go the long haul or is it just something where we can tell someone else's stories again and i say all that to say i'm really digging the noir vibe um i like her monologue and her you know i like that and the mental health plays into this this is what i was going to say a little earlier 
Um, even though she's coming off of this win in the defenders, and even though she's coming off against the off this win against Kilgrave, she still feels like a private eye should feel in one of these stories, and that's like nothing goes right for her. And I think the mental health element contributes, and that's where they kind of interweave the two, the noir and the mental health thing, and nothing's really going her way, even though everything should be. And she's got that perfect P.I. vibe, like she just can't get ahead. And I'm really enjoying the noir elements to it, even though I feel this season they're a little more overt than they were first season. Completely. Um I think what's really interesting is you can already tell in the early part of this season that they're the, the, the common character trait of Jessica Jones that I think is going to be, or I should maybe not character trait, but maybe there, I have a feeling there's going to be a common seminal moment in each of, of her seasons where there's going to be, it's not necessarily the climax, but it's like a climax of like maybe the first third of the episodes, which is this concept of Jessica making this realization, whether it's real or like, whether it's true or not, that I am the common ingredient of the problem, or I am the one that's manifesting the, the danger or the drama or the destruction or the death. And, um, she has that moment in like episode six or episode seven of season one. And it was one of her best acting moments when she's deciding to go throw herself in prison because she's like, this is the only way people are going to stop dying, but I can still get Kilgrave at the same time, you know? And I think with the way she's isolating herself early here in season two, there's going to be another one of those moments where she has that breaking moment of where she's like, maybe I'm the common problem. Um, and so I say that to say is that's both very realistic but two, I hope they find a way to package that moment a little bit differently than in the previous season. So then it still feels like she's reaching this conclusion, but not at the same time, like not in the same way as we've done before. So it doesn't get derivative. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, so I'll say my second big takeaway is um, I guess it's 50 50 both. Um, constructive criticism, but both like massive applauding. I want to say first, the most amazing, probably the most amazing thing about this show is behind the camera. And that is the fact that every single episode of season two of Jessica Jones was directed by a woman. And I just love that. I love that. It speaks to the showrunners. It speaks to Netflix. It speaks to um, where comic books are going. It's, it's just refreshing to see that a show as high profile as Jessica Jones from a company as high profile and sought after as Netflix touching a massive thing like the Marvel entertainment industry and going into an arena that is the largest budgetary playground, which is also the biggest, like the smallest room for error at the same time where people want to control it the most like this comic book thing. Like this is not a small thing. And what I love is that Netflix went ahead and said, there is no reason why we couldn't find amazingly talented women to tell these stories, to tell a woman's story, to say this is the way the world should look like. This is the way we should normally operate. And I love that. I absolutely love it. And, just, and I love that they're setting the tone with this with a, a show that does make a big splash, which is sh with a show that people recognize and they see. It's not like they did this on some small underseen docu-series that isn't getting any attention, you know? Yeah. So I, I love, I love that. What I, 
my one criticism about this is that I wish they would have followed the same formula that they took of season one, which is season one, they gave every director at least two episodes to direct. Mm. Where, whereas in season two, they got a different single director for every episode, I believe. So instead of working with five or six directors, they're working with 13, which is fine, like in theory. And clearly, like you have noted, they've decided that the film noir thing is really going to be kicked into overdrive, which, again, I've stated I'm cool with. What I think has been sacrificed, though, with changing the eye behind the camera so much is what is, at least in the first three episodes, what has been sacrificed are the really inventive comic book shots, like the angles, the camera work, the the vantage points of actually looking at certain things as though we are looking at a comic book frame. And that's one of the things that I just kind of selfishly enjoy as both a cinema nut and a comic book nut is knowing that most of the time I'm going to get a different kind of framing with the camera work, knowing that I'm walking into a comic book something. And I, I feel like that they got back to it a little bit more in episode three, but I just felt like it was really lacking. And maybe that was just because they were filling the first couple episodes with so much expository stuff that they didn't have very many, you know, like comic booky establishing shots. But I missed that as part of the experience. And I felt it was a little bit more seamless in season one where you had more of a consistent vision because you only had six directors instead of 13. And I, um, I really love that this is your second point because I, it gives – uh, I, I want to kind of call not you and I necessarily, but just us as a community, the comic book nerds of the world out um, because the the movies are getting ahead of the source material in doing what should have been done a long time ago and getting more representation in the creative teams. And Most certainly, yes. Marvel is really guilty of, and I love Marvel Comics, but they've been really guilty of this the last five, ten years of trying to put diversity into their characters, but the vast majority of the creators are still white dudes. And, I mean, some of the, my favorite favorite comics have been written by white dudes, so I'm not griping about that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've got really brilliant characters like Miss Marvel come from a woman who is also a Muslim and we get, you know, one of the best comics going right now is saga, which is drawn by a woman. And, uh, there's just, uh, you know, I mean, it it shouldn't have been the nineties when Christopher priest, like we talked about on our first episode became the first African American doing major work for one of the big two companies and it shouldn't be 2018 and we're still talking about it's not diverse to have some old white dude drawing women and african-americans and all these other people if they're the only people doing it and i'm not saying fire all the white guys i'm just saying like let's diversify with our creators because look at the range of experience we're getting in the cinematic arena with black panther with wonder woman with um, you know, Taika Waititi with Thor Ragnarok and, you know, Miss Marvel's co- or excuse me, Captain Marvel's coming up and that's going to be incredible. And like, I'm let's so diversify on the creative end. So I completely agree. No, 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 you're good. I'm, I'm, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I love that this is finally happening, but it's also just shameful that it's so late to the game. 
Um, but and side note, I am so stinking excited about Captain Marvel. It's going to be amazing. the Kree Scroll War. Movie. They're doing the Kree Scroll War. Oh. That move, oh, and Brie Larson in that role is going to be everything. I just can't wait. We're going to have to talk about that another time, but it's going to be amazing. Oh my gosh, all day, every day. Yes, let's talk about it. All right. So, uh, takeaway number three: Season two, Jessica Jones, first three episodes. Jake, go for it. So we've talked a little bit about it's feeling overstuffed. So I'm going to go be a giant hypocrite here and say that one of my big takeaways is, I guess, a question. Why do I love Malcolm's expanded role so much? Um, Okay. I'm glad you brought this up because I kind of wanted to talk about it too. Like I, um, and I'm not, I, I like all the characters. I think Jerry Hogarth is a fascinating character. Um, and a really fascinating frenemy to Jessica. It's a great foil. I think that Trish, actually speaking of Captain Marvel, um, Trish was originally Captain Marvel in the comics, but they didn't want to use her for the Netflix show since she had, since she had her own movie coming. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Trish is a great character. I, I just think all these expanding and trying to mathematically give the same screen time to everyone is a bit overstuffed. And yet every time it's Malcolm, I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do this. I think, I think Malcolm is the every man in this, at least in this, where they're at with this narrative, because it's like, I, I, I know that Trish is human, but at the same time, it's like, She's still she's still rich and famous and mm-hmm. still still living a pretty comfortable lifestyle. You know what I mean? And I feel like I feel like Malcolm is that character who, in addition to Jessica, obviously, because every main character in, in any good narrative needs redemption. But I feel like Malcolm is like Malcolm's that every man that's like still like we, we want redemption for that guy. Yeah, because in season one, I will legitimately say that his reveal of him um, spying on Jessica and being controlled by Killmonger was done masterfully. It was absolutely brilliant the way they unfolded it and, and, and how tender they allowed that relationship to still uh, be throughout the rest of that season after everything fell out. And I thought that was, that was maybe the most humanizing um, arc of the whole season. Uh, and seeing him now fully healthy, fully engaged and wanting to make a difference, but still being a human, like not being gifted as they say, mm-hmm. and, and still being such a noob at the same time, but knowing that he's talented and he has worth, but still knowing he has a long way to go. I just like, that's the component that if for whatever reason, there is absolutely not a single ounce of the Jessica Jones character that you can find relatable. Malcolm is the best insurance policy for that emotional connection you can probably find as a sidekick type character. Well, and I, I think that to take that thought and run with it, does it feel like as Jessica works harder and harder to alienate everyone around her, that Malcolm is like her humanity walking around for us to see because here's this person that in her darkest moment, she was able to do something good for, and she's hanging on to him And like, uh, you know, I know we said we're ahead a little bit, but I'm not too far ahead. I've tried to kind of stay on track so that I'm coming in with fresh thoughts. 
And I'm so terrified that like Malcolm is going to flip to the other PI agency because I'm afraid mm-hmm. I can't like Jessica anymore if she loses Malcolm. Yeah, it's like Malcolm is Malcolm's loyalty is it's almost beyond conventional definition. Yeah. But it's there and whether she admits it or not, she is she depends on it. And yeah. and it's just absolutely I mean for a campy word, it's noble to watch him deliver that loyalty whether it's warranted or not. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I so I mean that's takeaway three for me. I just I really, really love Malcolm. And what an odd third takeaway, but he's really stuck with me as a character. Yeah, definitely. So um my third takeaway is uh more of a question as well. And I'll say here we are three episodes deep and we still don't have a villain. So my question is are we are we fighting against an entity and a concept or are we fighting against a villain who represents that and will we find who that villain is like so season 3 or episode 3 ends with Jessica meeting this crazy woman who is not the doctor that she was pretending to be and obviously she is gifted and um from the IGH arsenal but i it, it's almost like i i'm is she going to be the actual like killmonger for the season or is she just another pawn like i i guess my question is i'm worried should i be worried about the narrative because if we don't have an actual physical presence or a face to put it on this is it going to hold up that we're going against just this concept of you know i was tested and it was wrong and i'm figuring it out now well, and I think, you know, I, I, I kind of go both ways on the answer because my first thought is I want to say, do we need a physical villain? Like, do we need a big bad? Are we so married to that narrative in the superhero genre that we can't escape it? And I do mean that as a question. Is it an mm-hmm. inescapable reality that without some central physical villain, superhero not or superhero narratives fall apart? Or is there a way that this story can be told that focuses entirely on the protagonist and there are just these incidental villains to be dealt with throughout? Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, – yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the the gold medal example of that is as far as like from comic book to movie is V for Vendetta. Mm. Um, that that That's the gold standard, which is – yeah, you had the chancellor. Yeah, you had some of those other cronies that he took out. But really what V was doing was he was overthrowing an ideal that the government was standing upon. Um, the, the, and to stay in the Alan Moore canon, the bad version of that, for lack of a better term, cinematically is Watchmen, where mm-hmm. you, you know that the narrative is there and you know that it can work, but the way that they put it to screen just still left you wanting for something. And there was still some vagary left and there are still some things left out that shouldn't have been, you know? So yeah. it, we, we've seen it done. Well, I, I think V for Vendetta still sits number one at the top of my comic book movies list. So it's, it, it can be done. So I'm not necessarily worried about that. I'm just really interested to see how that shakes out. If that's the way they go since 
um, season one was so Dexter like in this concept of like we have a hero and we have a villain in this nuclear season and we will end it, that narrative in some fashion by the end of the season. So well, it'll be I interesting. Think, to- I think you also have an example in house in the Netflix Marvel shows of the villain's importance because look at what what are the best the best things that Netflix Marvel has done, you know, you're looking at daredevil's got the Kingpin. Oh my gosh. Kingpin in season one of daredevil was so well done. Season three coming back. It's going to be so good. Um, But then you've also got Kilgrave in season one of Jessica Jones, but then you look at some of the weaker entries and I think you've got iron fist. And I, I like, I, man, I would just, almost would dare to say like don't watch it if you haven't yet (laughs) oh no i wouldn't even dare i'll say here's how you watch iron fist these are my instructions for you if you're a comic book fan if like me you think that brubaker's run on iron fist is freaking brilliant and you were thrilled to see it adapted here's how you handle this go to netflix find iron fist go past it find into the badlands and watch that instead Uh, because (laughs) iron fist is a disaster um but you've got Look at Luke Cage, where the first half of it is so good, and then they they do the the switcheroo where Cottonmouth Mahershala Ali gets killed off midway, and then they bring in Diamondback as the villain. And you're like, this is not this is not the same show. And I I question I tried way too hard. Oh my gosh, he just was so cartoony and like, and and I just I guess I question in house in this continuity. Does it work? You know, I mean, I think the the Defenders is very mediocre, not at all what I was hoping it would be. And I think that that's an example of it was this force in the hand and this organization. And it was such a bland and boring villain and a bland and boring story. And I fear if there isn't some physical presence to anchor the bad end of it, the villainous end of it, does Jessica Jones hold up for the next 10 episodes after these first three? Mm hmm. Um, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see, but it can be done and, and I'm willing yes. to trust it. I, I, I'm willing to say after the first three episodes, I will grade this as an A minus. Um, it because it's, it's still put together incredibly well. It's still Jessica Jones. I'm going to watch the whole season, even if it infuriates me, which I don't think it will, <laughs> but it didn't, it just, it did not come out of the gate quite as well as season one did if it's even possible to master that again but yeah season one was all killer no filler all the way through season two is clearly going to be more complex but narratively and and constructively it's it's going to be a little bit different as well and so we've just got to feel our way through that but i'd say solid a minus first three episodes yeah, I think I'll I think I'll echo that, you know, at risk of being the boring co-host. Um <laughs> I, I'd agree, A minus, because I I do think it's I think it's in danger of getting a little overstuffed. Um I'm worried that we're gonna lose time to subplots about Trish's romantic life. I mean <laughs> Griffin had well, better clearly, be Doctor Doom or something. Like I don't know how much the boyfriend. I know, right? Clearly the boyfriend she's with right now is either going to be dastardly in some right. way or he's just really poorly written and will disappear by episode five. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And so, like, 
It's, <laughs> um, I think it is getting a little overstuffed and that worries me this early, but at the same time, it's not like they can't over the next 10 episodes resolve some of those into one or two primary conflicts. And then maybe, you know, in a couple weeks, we're looking back on this and we're saying, oh, okay, so we were a little hasty to criticize that and it was all going somewhere. So, um, I'm totally loving the ride. It's definitely one of the best things I've watched in a while, even with that overstuffed nature. I'll stick with the A minus. And can I just say one final shout out that I think maybe the one thing that is probably being swept under the rug or maybe not swept under the rug, but maybe unacknowledged more than anything else, which is super ironic. Can we just take one small moment and say that Kristen Ritter's acting chops are absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. She is delivering in season one and in season two, she is delivering such a gritty but nuanced performance that I think is it's incredibly difficult to do what she does when she does it on command and going back and forth to certain things. And she does it in such an authentic way. I, I, I'm absolutely loving her in this role and have no problem watching her explore these emotions for 35 out of a 45 minute episode you know like she i I don't know she's she's nailing it and i don't think she gets talked her performance gets talked about as much as it should in regards to this show as ironic as that sounds no i think that's a really good point she has certainly come a long way from choking to death in front of brian cranston and I totally um, and and that don't trust the be in apartment 23 or whatever that right. was that was her yeah mm-hmm. totally. um, yeah she she's she's very talented and she really anchors the whole thing and maybe we just i don't know maybe we're taking her for granted a little bit so good call yeah shout but, out to Kristen yeah, ritter i know you're listening but she Kristen, we love you um give me a shout out <laughs> send me a text it's been a couple of days but yeah it's like she just slipped into this character so seamlessly that it was like it's almost as though like I welcomed her with open arms as Jessica and now I just have it and it's so comfortable that I live with it. And you're, and you're forgetting that. Holy crap. Kristen Ritter, get it. Like she's just delivering a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I read a really interesting interview with her. I wish I could, I tried to find it again, but she talked a little bit about season one, taking a real toll on her emotionally, just embodying this character. But she's I'm glad to hear, though, she has done a much better job. She said she knew what she was getting into this time and came ready to do some better self-care. And so she's not necessarily as messed up this year. That's awesome. And shout out to Netflix for doing the BBC model, which is just do it when the scripts are ready and don't just pressure a timeline for the sake of having content. Man, Um, we'd be so much better off if everything were done on the BBC model. Exactly. I have a feeling at the end of the season, whether we think it's remarkable or slightly less than remarkable, we're still probably going to like it better than a slew of season twos of other quickly produced American stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's it for Jessica Jones season two, episodes one through three. Jake and I will be back next week with uh, some more takes on the next bunch of episodes. So watch along with us. We hope you're enjoying our takes. But Jake, now is the time to pivot to something that is not applicable to Jessica Jones in any way, shape or form. So (laughs) as some more talented folks than us have made a career out of saying and now for something completely different. (laughs) Um, I'm going to 
I'm going to give a quick lead in here to how this came to be. And then, Jake, I want you to give us a quick breakdown of um, what this comic actually was. And then we can give a little feedback on it here in the last few minutes of the episode. Yeah. So uh, we, we are in the podcast game, as you all know. And what comes with that, too, is this really cool collection of people that you build uh, in a following on social media. And that's part of the draw is the conversation that both Jake and I have that you listen to that we engage in. But then also the conversation we have with people outside of that. And we have a Twitter page, which is at Watch Comics Pod. And that's comics with an X. And then on Instagram, we are at Watching Comics, spelled traditionally. And um, on Instagram, we got hit up by the... Um, the production team behind a independent comic called alien toilet monsters. And if you follow, if you follow the indie comic book game a little bit, you may have come across this one Um, in the latter part of 2017, this kind of burst through the scene as this um, raunchy, grotesque, but hilariously dark take of social commentary and feminism. And it kind of picked up some heat and won a few awards and everything. And it's making the circuits and it's resurfacing for some more issues. And they reached out to us and asked us to give them a shout out on their inaugural, um, issue of alien toilet monsters and just to kind of, uh, hash it over and say whether we liked it or not. And so it was really cool to get exclusive access to some artwork and this issue and just to kind of read it and to be excited about knowing that like our opinion matters, at least in some level or another in the comic book lore, which was just really kind of cool. So pat ourselves on the back there. Um, hashtag humble brag and all those things. So anyway, Jake alien toilet monsters issue one, let us know what you thought. Well, my my very first impression of it was that the art is um, anyone who knows me and comic books knows that I don't like a lot that came out of the late 80s to the mid 90s in comics. Um, I kind of think of that as the dark ages for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Um, But there are some bright spots. They really. Oh, it was rough. Um And I I think that um, one of the bright spots in it is there was there those man, those people in the 90s knew how to draw a monster. And this art really took me back to that um, in the best way. I really felt like the art here had a sort of 80s to 90s Todd McFarlane vibe. Todd McFarlane's the guy who created Venom in the Spider-Man comics and then went on to create Spawn. Okay, and, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was I was going to mention if you didn't it that I felt like I was artwork wise it it felt very reminiscent of like Spawn meets yeah. old school Ghostbusters. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. And I, I mean that's just it like it had I mean there's some some great monster drawings here and it just had this like horror vibe to it in the best way that I really was really digging. Um, I thought that, um, I thought that was probably the best part of it was the art, you know, and that's not to trash the rest of it, but the art really stood out to me. I think that I, having only read the first issue, I enjoyed it. My fear is that the alien toilet monster thing, like that it's, gonna go for gross out gags too much um Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. lose some of the substance because there is this really 
that I was not expecting when I read the title, there was some real like solid sci-fi stuff going on in there. There's a really cool bit of world building that is done really subtly and they throw you in and they expect you to be smart enough to understand it. And I always appreciate that. Um, I just, my fear is that it gets caught up in the, um, the gross out gags that can come with this. But I, I think that so far in the first issue, it has stayed away from that. So I, I would say that, um, as far as establishing the world is concerned and, and the way that the narrative unfolds and the rules that they are following in this world, it felt very, I, I always leaned to lean more towards cinematic comparisons just because cinema is what I love the most and it's like secondary and then comic books are secondary whereas yours is like the other way around you know what I mean and so I I feel like this is very reminiscent of like a Luc Besson movie where they've gone to great lengths to make sure that you know exactly how this world works and Mm -hmm. that they know how this world works even beyond a level of what they are showing yet in these pages but then it felt like among all these details and this amazingly like horrific um, portrayals and, and imagery and the, and the way these rules operate, it felt like there was Danny McBride dialogue interspersed <laughs> over it, which is both good, but also could be polarizing. It would just be really interesting to see this in the context of a couple more issues. Cause then you have things like you've got this profound moment where you have this woman who just finished transforming and then she's exhausted and trying to process what happened. And she's laying down on the ground and then says, happiness is a state of mind. And I could see that as like a really big seminal moment right there for this issue. But then at the same time, you also have a, another alien toilet monster who in her human form, she is saying into a cell phone, Hey, I warned them not to get me wet after midnight. So it's like you, you get this, this crude stuff interspersed, but I think it's welcome in the world that they have established. And most of it is humorous, but also at the same time, it is also so rigid and so different from an awful lot of stuff that's out there. And it's certainly not what you would expect in, a, in an alien um, monster movie comic book type mashup. But I think, I think it works more than it doesn't. But yeah, I'm with yeah. you where if I had a larger context to view it in, I could probably see if those character traits are consistent or if it's just there for flashy one-liners. Well, and I think that the best thing I can say about any first issue of any comic ever is it made me want to read issue two. And that is absolutely how I felt finishing this. Um, You know, some things hold up over 20 issues, some things hold up over 20 years, and some things don't. But, you know, this one, with the single issue I had in my hand, I finished it and I thought I'd, I'd read another one of those and I would really love to see where the world building is going. I'd love to see if they can strike that balance with the toilet humor and the uh, deeper satire that they're going for. And I think that even if they can't quite strike that balance, I would be really interested to read more from this creative team because I've read enough things to know that just because the very first thing someone does doesn't light the world on fire doesn't mean that they don't have talent, you know? And so I would, I would expect to see more good stuff out of this team in the future. Exactly. I I couldn't have said that better. What, what I would love to see here is, uh, um, 
obviously the artwork is I mean, the artwork truly is masterful. I think in, in certain lights of what they were accomplishing here and what, and the type of subject matter that they were drawing. Um, but yeah, the, the social commentary aspect of it is, is I think the biggest piece that I would like to see how it evolves because obviously toilet humor is funny when it's, when it's delivered correctly. So I'm going to mm-hmm. laugh at that stuff anyway, because you know, step brothers is one of my favorite movies <laughs> and, and oh, I love yeah. Deadpool Deadpool comics and dead, the Deadpool movie. So it's like, I, I know that I'm going to be fine with that. But if, if that can be interlaced with this um, woman forward, kick and tail, destroying things, eating things as monsters, it, if that could intertwine into a beautifully raunchy dance, then it could be something that has a lasting effect. But either way, I think I will be entertained by it. And that is more than I could say than a lot of other stuff that we have come across before. So I would, if I were grading this, I would grade this as a solid B with the artwork getting an A plus. Yeah. Again, I'll be the boring host, but I, I agree with that. I think you nailed it. And I think that um, the thing shows some potential and I, I really do. I will probably try to track down a few more issues of it. For sure. Alien toilet monsters. Um, I'm scrolling down here at what I've got. Um, Alien Toilet Monsters. They have a website, aliantoiletmonsters.com. You can read or order online there, or you can also find this in some retailers. Um, uh, Carol Zara and Eric Barnett are the creative team behind this. So check them out on Twitter. And I believe Alien Toilet Monsters also has an Instagram page, and it's spelled just the way you would think. So you need to be sure to check it out. They gave us some love. We want to give them some love. And I, I definitely think that this, this book is worth reading. And you need to check out the rest of the series as well, because I know Jake and I want to see where this goes. Yeah, for sure. Um, whew, what an episode. <laughs> yeah, a couple weeks in the making. Boom, and we made it happen. So yeah. homework for you listeners. Uh, dive into the next few episodes of Jessica Jones Season 2, and we will be revisiting that next week. So hit us up on watchingcomics.com or on Twitter at watchcomicspod with an X, watchcomicspod, or on Instagram at watchingcomics. We want to hear from you. Uh, Jake also wants to hear your hot takes on um, all the fun stuff that he's tweeting about as well because the dude is in tune with the latest news of the comic lore. That's for sure. Yeah, if you're looking for, I definitely, Mitch nailed it. I'm coming at this from comics to movies rather than movies to comics. If you're interested in what's going on in comics, I I try to keep up on that. And uh, I do try to have some sort of observation on it. So, yeah, I'd love to have dialogues about that with people. Love to chat. Definitely. So, as always, thanks for listening. Give us a rate and review on the iTunes, please, because it would be a nice thing. And we'll be your friend forever. So uh, we'll come at you next week. We'll see you.